Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 196th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Daniel Hanouche. Daniel is the co-founder of One and Done Financial, a virtual independent RIA that oversees nearly 70 million of assets under management for almost 350 client households. What's unique about Daniel, though, is his firm's niche focus on Chick-fil-A operators and how by partnering with a key center of influence in the Chick-fil-A community, Daniel's firm has been able to consistently add five to 10 new clients per month to get them to those 350 client households in barely four years since launching. In this episode, we talk in depth about Daniel's path to the Chick-fil-A niche, how he started out like so many advisors as a generalist serving anyone and everyone he could meet the way a fateful introduction by a recruiter to another advisor seeking to build a business with similar values led to Daniel meeting his business partner, the way they formed an advisory firm partnership with the delineation of roles where Daniel would focus on building the business internally while his partner uses existing Chick-fil-A relationships to grow the clientele, and why when you find traction in a niche, it's so crucial to take the time to build the internal systems and processes. Because as Daniel puts it, if your visibility exceeds your ability, it destroys your credibility. We also talk about how Daniel's firm is actually building in the Chick-fil-A niche, how they separate out the advice services that One and Done provides from the home office support that Chick-fil-A itself gives its franchise operators, the unique modular approach to financial planning their firm takes, why services are split into monthly financial planning fees, investment management for standalone portfolios, and a separate retirement planning service offering with its own pricing structure and how Chick-fil-A's robust business model and their own franchise vetting process effectively ensures that virtually every Chick-fil-A operator will be a good fit for Daniel's advisory firm. And be certain to listen to the end, where Daniel shares why they've decided to build their fast-growing advisory firm entirely virtually, the reason they decide to invest heavily into Salesforce as their CRM system, and the power of not being everything to everyone and finding the one thing you can be the best at and using that as the core to grow and scale your advisory business. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Daniel Hanoush. Welcome, Daniel Hanoush, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's an honor to be here. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. You know, as, as people who listen to the podcast know, uh, we, we've got a bit of a thing around here about uh, niches and, and people that advisors that specialize into certain areas you you have what to me is is one of the more i guess d- distinct and unique niches that's out there of uh chick-fil-a operators right like a, a particular business a particular franchise focused in just with chick-fil-a operators and i know i've had just absolutely explosive growth with that, like hundreds of clients in just a few years since you launched, all built around this niche focus with a partner that has a connection to the community. And and just I'm I'm really fascinated with this kind of story of what does it look like when you kind of just come out of the gate all into a niche and get that kind of rapid growth and all the challenges, of course, that come with lots of clients and then lots of hiring and building teams and training, everything that goes with it. But 
I just ex- excited to talk about, I think, uh, a, a little bit of a unique niche, at least relative to traditional advisor world, where either we, we don't specialize at all or, or we pick things like doctors, dentists, architects. Like, I feel like Chick-fil-A operators is a little bit of a different kind of niche than what we usually hear about in the advisor world. Absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to tell the story here, and I, I can't take credit for how I've fallen into it. I'm excited to tell that story as well. I do want to say that we also serve the support staff, so it broadens it just a little bit. So, you know, the headquarter type support staff employees at support operators. So really the Chick-fil-A ecosphere. But yeah, don't 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 think of this as a mastermind plan from the beginning of the industry. I, I'm excited to share. Uh, I remember chatting with my wife when I first started about five years ago, and I was a generalist and struggling to pick you know, my focus. And uh, she was very wise in saying, you know, maybe get started and see who you like working with and going from there. So I definitely did that same thing. You know, should I go the doctor route? Should I go the dentist route? My wife's a pharmacist. Should I do the pharmacist route? But in the end, I took whoever would have me (laughs) in the beginning. And it's been an awesome growth journey since. Very cool. Very cool. So I, I think as a starting point, Talk to us just about the advisory firm as it exists today. Like, let us understand what the business is now, and then I, I want to understand more about this journey and how you went from generalist to Chick Fil A operator and support staff specialist, and 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 how this evolved. But tell us about the advisory firm as it exists today. Yeah, it's it's really 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 exciting. We we've been in business. I've been in the industry five years, but our team has been together probably four years. I think April of 2016 is when I met my partner. So today we've got a team of nine people scattered across the U.S., completely virtual, which is really exciting. We were doing that before it was sexy in terms of recent or, environments. Or completely but, uh, necessary in terms of recent environments. Okay. So we're already operating virtually. So at least pandemic was not quite the disruption for for you compared to some, I guess, at least in terms of running the firm, I, I would imagine it's a little more disruptive if you were a Chick-fil-A operator, but we'll come to that a little bit later. Absolutely. Yeah. We certainly work very hard helping our clients in, in the situation and dealing with the loan options and you know dealing with cash flow and market dips and all that. But from an operational standpoint, we've been primed and ready and working, iterating on this virtual business really since the beginning and don't want to take credit for that either was the XY community and articles you've written and hosts you've had that really paved the way for this world. But we've adopted that from the very beginning and we serve anywhere from three to 400 households. Uh, It's growing. And I'd say in the last month, it's really taken off, but right around 350. 350 households. Like that's (laughs) <laughs> for a firm that got underway, as you said, the team came together a little over four years ago in April of 2016. Like we'll we'll come back to this. I think a little bit more. Like that's a re- really big number. Like that's 75 to 100, 75 to 100 clients a year. Like that's that's one or two clients a week every week for four years since starting. That's about what it's felt like. And, and, you know, for a while there was, you know, five to 10 clients a month easy. And, you know, there's periods of surges in the, in our clients life cycle in the year. But yeah, we're really, I mean, just to give an example, we, with the specialized niche or niche, Chick-fil-A invited us 
and this is right before the pandemic really took off, to go to their next event, which is where they rented out two cruise ships, not one, but two massive cruise ships and took everybody in the Chick-fil-A world, their spouses, operators, support staff. So it was about, I don't know, I think the numbers were around six or 7,000 Chick-fil-A people. That may include vendors, but they invited us to come and tell our story where we could talk to the entire network of Chick-fil-A people. So it's, it's, it's the relationship, it's the niche that has given us the high growth of clients. But just to paint the full picture, you know, we're approaching 70 million of asset center management, which is, you know, great, modest per the amount of households, but we're helping a lot of high income folks who are, you know, on the way to building great wealth and having huge impact. We're actively hiring all the time. We're always looking for great people. I think Alan, our most recent hire, you know, a Kansas State financial planning undergraduate, Thomas Meek had reached out to Alan looking for a virtual firm and Alan connected us and we interviewed him and he was a great fit. So likewise, we're we're always hiring. We've got a couple of uh, job openings now. So we're, we're continually growing. We're aiming to be a billion dollar AUM firm in 10 years or less. So it's less than 10 years at this point, 2030. And trying to think what else, you know, virtual from the beginning, everyone works from home, you know, five of us in Georgia, one in Texas, and three of us in Montana. I'm actually right here in Bozeman, Montana, right with XYPN headquarters. So that's a fun connection. Yeah, no, no, no relationship. Just that happens to literally be where you are. I think Alan likes to take credit for it, but it, they were two two parallel journeys that definitely were influenced by XYPN's gravitational impact. <laughs> So talk to us a little bit more about this clientele that that you serve, right? like 350 households, but just like, I'll put that in air quotes, just 70 million of, of AUM. So average client is about $200,000 of investable assets, at least, which is, I think, relative to a lot of the advisor world, like a, a, a less affluent clientele than a lot of advisors are focused on firms often drift up market. So talk to us a little bit more about this clientele. Like, is it sort of, is that a consistent number? Is it actually like, well, the, you know, the median's much lower, but there's a few big clients in there that, that drag it up. You mentioned that they're high income. So presumably that means this, this is also a group where their AUM is going to build over time. Cause you are working with Chick-fil-A operators, like you, you're not working with people in their 70s who are in net withdrawal. You're working with business owners in their I don't know, 30s, 40s, 50s that are still in savings and contribution and wealth accumulation mode. So talk to us a little bit more about this clientele. Like what what exactly are you doing for them? What does the relationship look like? Is it even fair to think about it in terms of AUM or do you, you know, work with them on a different fee model basis anyways? Yeah, no, these, these are great questions. I'll try and uh, take it a little of time. We are definitely in the mode where most people are still saving, earning, and just hustling. I mean, we, we've got a 71-year-old client who's making $1.2 managing three Chick-fil-A stores and just a heart of gold. We probably only have less than a handful that have actually retired. So that's most of the people we're dealing with are still, you know, movers and shakers. And like I mentioned in the beginning, when we first started out, I would take anybody. My, my first client was a high school friend who 
just graduated college and got his first job and we opened up an IRA together. <laughs> so, you know, $5,000 to start off a, a Roth IRA and we still have several pastor clients. So we've never had the philosophy of, you know, asset minimums, you know, as I'm growing from scratch now with my partner, Jim, you know, we really didn't think about, well, what's the way to be the most profitable? We serve the people that were in front of us. And I really think that we've been blessed as a result of that. If you talk about who the clients that are walking in the front door now, and you talk about the fact that we've embraced our hedgehog concept and really focusing on our, on our niche, only serving Chick-fil-A and support staff, which we haven't really announced. We're about to, we, I, I changed the language on our website. We're going through a rebrand and about to tell you know, our existing clients, as well as future clients, that this is our focus. It won't be much of a shock just from, you know, how we've been growing and what we've been about. So when you look at AU, I'm trying to take your original question, you know, there's definitely some in there that are pastors and friends and family that helped us start out over the five years that, you know, assets aren't necessarily there or they're, they're growing, but we just, we have a heart to really help those who need it. And we really think that we'll grow and be blessed as, as a result. And that's been our story. So did you grow across the board that way? Or is this just like, you know, we had a smattering of other clients early on, but now out of 350 clients, like 300 plus of them are are in Chick-fil-A and there's just a few dozen. You got it. Yep. <laughs> uh, of the others. We're going <laughs> to we're going to endearingly refer to them as legacy clients I think but yes it's the the initial I would say the the non-Chick-fil-A folks were probably that first year and and probably primarily from my side before I met my partner Jim who I'm excited to share about but yeah no I would say 90% of our clientele is Chick-fil-A 99.99% in the past year growth wise has been Chick-fil-A and we just realized okay this is where we can truly be the best in the world at and really get laser focused on our messaging on our process and fine tune and build what they need and the impact that they have in their communities it just seemed like a, a huge win you know our mission is to grow wealth to empower purposeful living and giving and we found that this clientele um fits that perfectly. Their mission, their vision, we're aligned. We enjoy working with them. It's fun. The impact that they're having with their communities, it's great to be a part of that. So yes, I would say they're they're super high earning individuals. You know, I don't I don't blink an eye when I see a 20 year old just starting out making over a quarter of a million, you know, they they just handed them the keys. It doesn't it doesn't that I don't blink an eye at that. I would say most are in the four hundred uh, half a million range. And depending on the number of stores they're managing, I mean, three stores, you know, we have clients making well over a million a year. So that just means that they have the ability to have great impact. And we focus a lot on generosity. That's the heartbeat of, you know, why build wealth in the first place. And so we feel like our clients get that as well. And so we get to help remove obstacles and really empower their generosity. So the other thing, Michael, is that we set up 401ks for all these operators. They get to make the decision on you know, opening up benefits. Each store owner operator makes an independent decision. So there's really an arm's length between corporate. It's not like a massive corporate plan, although there is one for the support staff. Each operator makes their own. And so we've got over 250 or close to 250 retirement plans 
401ks, pension plans that are formed. And that means, you know, thousands of participants that are a part of that as well. And we're not counting those people in our in our client count. But it's it's a hockey stick growth. If you looked at our AUM, you know, just a few years ago, we started at zero, really the end of 2015. Yeah, we expect to be at a billion in less than 10 years with just the exponential growth that we've activated in the last few years. So help me understand a little bit more, I guess, just where all these dollars come from. I Perhaps just my my own ignorance. I, I have you been to a Chick Fil A lately? <laughs> yeah, I, I I mean I yes, and you know the, the kids love going there. In fact, we we frequent them quite a bit with our family these days. You know, I guess I just I wouldn't have thought of sort of fat, fast food franchise owners as being like hundreds of thousands of dollars of free cash flow per store times the number of stores that you can buy and 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 leverage yourself up at just like that's those are some really big income numbers moving through so is that just kind of the reality like the the chick-fil-a formula and franchise and brand is is strong enough that if you get to work with them and set up a store through them just like this is the recipe for success that they that they put forward I would say that their model is very unique and it's very, very limited capital requirements needed to set up a restaurant from the operator standpoint. It's much more like a Harvard entrance where very, like less than a percent, or, you know, very, very small percentage of people that apply, thousands and thousands of people apply, but very few are selected. And if you're selected after a rigorous process, Chick fil A pretty much handle, there's a very small, you would you would scoff at it. I mean, it's just a few thousand dollars to get started, and I believe they give it back to you when you're done. It's really Chick Fil A has a great model, and the store volume is just incredible. So, like I said, I don't even bat an eye at these numbers anymore. And when I think about it in terms of you know other people and myself, it's just mind boggling. And so, the planning opportunities that come from that are, are just tremendous, and that's that's really exciting. Which I guess just speaks all the more to why it's such a powerful niche. Right? It's like you you have a you have a major franchise that's built a great brand, figured out its formula for success and how to deliver on it, and even goes so far as to extensively, massively vet and evaluate every single one of your potential future prospect clients to make sure they're really, really, really likely to be extremely successful <laughs> before you get an oppor- before you get an opportunity to go work with them and be successful as their financial advisor. Well, what's what's even bet you got it right on right on the head, but I'd say Michael like half of our team like on my team have a Chick-fil-A background. So we actually use their vetting process to determine who's a good fit. I had a, a colleague ask, you know, how are you finding these great people and honestly just being in the Chick-fil-A ecosphere, there's great people that they attract. Good solid people that are you know, our core values resonate so well with and our mission. So yeah, I would say, and, and love to chat about this more, but our, our approach in growing the team has not been find the industry professional. I, I mean, myself and Jim, my partner, you know, we come from other industries and most of the team came from something else and it was the right culture fit. It was the right aptitude to learn and the desire to grow that, you know, we recognize, and quite frankly, as a young company with our AUM, with our revenue, that we could grow a nine-person team so quick just by prioritizing people who get the vision and 
can learn the financial planning stuff, right? But if they have some sort of affinity towards Chick-fil-A, if they have a background there, it really helps. But, you know, an affinity towards our culture and mission and an aptitude to grow. And that's been our formula for success. So, so help us understand more now of how you chose, like how you found and chose this niche. You said like you started out a generalist five years ago, did some stuff, picked a niche, bada bing, bada boom, 350 clients in four years. We could just stop the podcast right there, Michael. That's the, that's it. I mean, that was the story. There you go. Uh, riches and niches, the end. So, but as you said, like I, right, the first part's the hardest, like, okay, but how do you pick one, right? As you said, like you were, you started out as a generalist, really struggling to pick. Your wife said, like, just try it for a while, see if anything jumps out at you. So like, how did you go from got started as a new financial advisor who was a generalist to now I'm in this thriving Chick-fil-A niche. Like, how did you find it? How did you pick it? How did you get started? Like, when when did that path turn from generalist to specializing in Chick-fil-A? Yeah, I would say that it was organic, and I do not get the credit for it. I feel very blessed. But really what happened, part of, part of my journey, and there was great struggle in that first year. I got to share a little bit of that with Alan on, on the XY podcast, but just a few years, even leading into launching into the profession of just, some people would call it turmoil. <laughs> so, you know, I can share a little bit of that journey, but I don't know that I would have picked this. I, I know I, I would not have, and, and I'll share how that came about, but really I was kind of getting in the story. What I was alluding to is I started out interviewing at Ron Blue while I was a chemical engineer working in another industry. I thought, okay, the way I'm going to branch into this is working at Ron Blue or a major, you know, a firm that I I agreed with their values and whatnot. And my partner Jim also had applied in his history at Ron Blue. Both of us, for various reasons, did not get the position that we were applying for at the time. Funny enough, both of us found out that Ron Blue came back and reached out to us later, and we'd already developed in our careers and were pursuing other opportunities. But long story short, people at Ron Blue heard my story and heard Jim's story, and it was a specific person that invited us to meet for a little networking event. And so I met Jim, heard his story, and really the bottom line is that you know I'm a business builder, entrepreneur. You know, I built our first website and a lot of our systems and sort of a recovering do-it-yourselfer. And Jim had a 20-year career at Chick-fil-A who is passionate about serving people in that way, had an incredible reputation and brand at, at Chick-fil-A, which we can we can talk about. But my capacity and his network and relationships and desire to serve people well, there was affinity. Like we were both using e-money at the time. He was just doing it for free at night you know, while he kept his day job at corporate. And so, you know, there was a period of time in which we developed uh, a partnership. But long story short, it's meeting Jim and his network. And I tell you, like I struggled for a year and a half, probably got to a million and a half of AUM by myself with 20 households or so. That was my story and would be an, an organic progression of that if I didn't meet Jim. And Jim had this incredible network of clients that were begging him to, you know, basically his job within Chick-fil-A was to 
help operators make more money in the business, right? To, to be a financial consultant, to get better profitability, to manage waste, to deal with team members. And he created video content for the entire network. So he's a guy who is known for caring. He would sing happy birthday and anniversary, workiversary to basically entire chain, 5,000 videos going out for happy birthday and anniversary. And not to mention, you know, all the video content he created to teach operators how to make more money in the business. So he was well known. He always wanted to a lot, you know, help people on the the personal side, but Chick-fil-A would not take on the fiduciary liability of that. And so they always referred that out. And finally he realized, oh, I've got to, I've got to do this. I felt called. So he started doing it for free on the side. And when we met, I was basically the catalyst, the activation energy. You want to do it. I can make it happen. You've got the network. We're, you know, a wonderful partnership. And that is what enabled us. And we didn't even go out from there and say, okay, we're only serving Chick-fil-A. We kept an open policy. You know, if you, I love, I think you've been a part of the framework for identifying, you know, if you see our value, you're willing to pay our fee and you're motivated, that's who we served, right? We didn't have asset minimums. um, And quite frankly, we didn't even have fee minimums. We've learned, okay, if we're going to grow a business, we've got to charge a minimum fee. So that's kind of been an organic progression. But a long story short, I didn't pick it. I was fortunate enough to find Jim and we have iterated from that and to this point where today we literally this week are saying we're only serving Chick-fil-A and that's coming from reading good to great and really diving into that hedgehog concept, which probably many of your viewers know that, know that well. Yeah. The, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact, the exact analogy, the Fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one, one big thing. I think it was. And so the whole, the whole idea for it was like great businesses, know one, no one great thing that they're really great at and they, and they crush at it. And that's what makes them huge. Yeah. It's the intersection of what can you truly be the best in the world at? What can you actually build a business around and what are you passionate about? And, you know, missing any one of those things, you know, kind of disqualifies the whole concept. But if you find the intersection of all those three things, boom, you've got an idea and you've got a niche. And so for us, we found it and we are going to embrace it and stop, you know, we had a hard, the hardest times closing the door, worrying about what that would do, but we are going to focus. Very cool. Very cool. And so I'm struck by just the, 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 the story and the connection, the way this comes together for, for you and Jim that, I mean, at, at its core, it reminds me of, Frankly, like a, a longstanding, well, yeah, there's a little bit of, of Alan and I, but it, it reminds me of the longstanding approach that, frankly, we, we've always been counseled towards in the advisory business, which is, you know, one of the best ways to build your business is, is through referrals with centers of influence. You know, you just did it a little bit differently and more powerfully because A, you found, I think, a very unique center of influence, right? We tend to think of like, accountants and attorneys and mortgage brokers and and people like that who are more directly tied to the financial system and and might refer business to us you found sort of a unique center of influence within a particular niche which is 
the guy that was the go-to trainer for all the Chick-fil-A operators for 20 years who knows everyone in that community, as you said. So has a unique center of influence role in that community. And just you you kind of went one step further because you didn't just get referrals with him. You made him your business partner. <laughs> like you're you're building the business with him, I guess in part because he wanted to go more of the financial advising route as well. So it blended well, but just there is to me sort of an essence of like, yeah, this whole centers of influence thing can be really powerful, but you don't only have to look in traditional realms like doctors, uh, not doctors, uh, lawyers and accountants and, and mortgage brokers and such. And you don't just have to set these up as referral relationships or even solicitor arrangements. Like you can literally go into business with someone. If you've got a shared vision around who you're serving and what you're going to do for them, you, you can build this together. Yeah. And I, I would say Alan characterized our relationship really well. And the formula, if you were to look at it and maybe distill out Daniel, Jim, Chick-fil-A, it's finding a really big influencer, call it a celebrity, call it not. You know, He likened our relationship to yours and him in that you were the celebrity that helped bring that initial gravity and weight and instant credibility and things like that. So if you were to try and reproduce the formula, you know, perhaps it's going to an area where there is a big, big key in influencer and make him a partner. I mean, I'm not saying that was what I was out to do, but, you know, some people say, well, gosh, are you going to be able to reach your billion dollar AUM goal with just Chick-fil-A? I, I think it's, it's a really no brainer, not a problem at all, but we also have a secondary. I mean, how many, how many Chick-fil-A franchises or operators are there? Yeah, there's. I think there's, and Jim knows these numbers much better because they change. But it's it's roughly like two thousand stores. Not all those, you know. Some of them are, there's multi store operators. So I would say just under two thousand operators, just around two thousand support staff, and they add probably a hundred a year of new store openings or operators. And Chick Fil A has their own internal goals of you know doubling at least in the next 10 years. So we probably have 10% market share as it stands now. And that's of Chick-fil-A's current environment. And if they double or triple, then I think we have plenty of room to grow. I mean, even just, even just doing knack math on this, like if, if, you know, if there's 2000 stores, like a store owner can make like a quarter of a million dollars out of a store there's $500 million of annual profits spinning out of, of Chick-fil-A franchises. So, you know, you, you, if your target market has half a billion dollars a year of free cash flow, you don't really need to capture a lot of it to, to make this math add up for, for some really big uh, numbers in that community, right? And that's before you get into oh, and by the way, they want to double it. So in 10 years, there'll be a billion dollars of free cash flow savings coming out from the Chick-fil-A operators. Like, I mean, just those numbers to me are are enormous. And and obviously that's before you get into their spouses, any other wealth or assets they have, like anything else they might be bringing to the table. Right? That's just literally the market opportunity from the growth and free cash flow of 2000 Chick-fil-A stores. And as you've also noted, like 2000 home office staff that support the Chick-fil-A ecosystem as well. And if you wanted to get wild and crazy and again, to still out the essence, if you were to reproduce this, this model, 
you know, we, we, we can see if, if ever there was a need to pivot, you know, we could reproduce what we did with Chick-fil-A, find another vertical medium, find an influencer, even make them partner if, if, you know, if we need to, but, you know, pick another brand and do this again, where basically we, we take a franchise model and go vertical with it and become specialists in that arena because there's so many opportunities in this way of planning. And again, 250 retirement plans, it's worked out to where even if, you know, an operator or support staff, or let's just say an operator has an existing financial advisor relationship, that's fine. You know, the fact that we know Chick-fil-A, we know the language, we know the systems, we are third party vendor approved within their Chick-fil-A networks. We're on a very short list that Chick-fil-A has, you know, they're not, um, they're not calling us, you know, anything other than they vetted us and operators can choose our services. So even if they have an outside advisor, you know, when we talk about 401k plans, that's such a specialty that again, they can keep their financial advisor for their personal stuff. If they so choose, we're happy to take them on, but there's no pressure. You know, we can set up a retirement plan and impact all 100, 200 employees that they have. And it's just an incredible service opportunity. So I'm wondering then like, when you decide you want to come together with Jim and create this, how do, how does this business get cr- actually get created and launched? Like, were you were you fifty fifty partners? Was there a like, no no no, I'm going to build the business. I want more than half. Or he comes to the table and says, like, I'm the one that knows all the people. Like, I should have a little bit more of a stake. Like, how do you, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, we should work work together. Then you know you you sit down and have to quickly get to the nitty gritty of uh, of of what this actually looks like. Like, how did you actually pull together a partnership? That's a great question. And Jim and I both had our own RIA set up. So I, I had a firm and Jim had a firm that he was operating, again, really charging nothing just because that was his passion and wanted to do it and wanted to serve people and, you know, to meet compliance. So we came at it with two existing entities and said, okay, well, how are we going to do this? We engaged a lawyer. We were very amicable from the front. So we, we spent some time really vetting, you know, spending time with each other at our, at our homes, meeting the family and that sort of thing. But we just were aligned on our values, our faith, the way we serve operators, the technology we use, the fee-only approach. There were so many things that aligned that made the process simpler. And we just went at it from a 50-50 standpoint, hard nose. Even to the point where we engaged a lawyer they were telling us, okay, someone needs to be 51, someone needs to be 49. And what happens if you don't agree? And there's a stalemate and the entity stalls. And we just said, I understand all that, but we just don't feel comfortable creating this sort of dynamic because we both bring different things to the table and we don't do the do th- the same things. And in the beginning, I definitely worked harder, you know, building infrastructure and getting things ready. Jim's bringing the network. And so how do you put a price tag on that? But you know, there's an element of speed of trust where we trust one another. And if we can't be 50-50 in trust, then I think that would, you know, maybe we shouldn't be partners in the first place. So yeah, we, we created a, a legal document together, you know, take an operating agreement. We had the same attorney and we just said, look, we want to be equal. We want it to be fair. So help us make this language as mutually beneficial as possible. And that's the route we took. But it sounds like you you did come to the table with I guess very very different roles and styles. Like Jim, 
Jim's the Jim's the celebrity that's known the community. You're the one that really wants to be the integrator, the business builder guy. So, so talk to us about how you carved this up from a, I guess like a duties perspective of okay, we're making this thing together now. Who who do who does what? We're fifty fifty partners, but obviously you can't or you don't necessarily literally 50-50 everything. So so how did you carve up who does what and how it works? Yeah, in hindsight, today we have books like Rocket Fuel, which you guys recommended. We have Traction. We have a framework to think through different roles and responsibilities. At the time, yeah, we did not have the luxury of carving up, well, I'm going to work on this and you work on that. We It was just the two of us. We didn't have any employees and at the time, again, Jim was still had a full-time job at Chick-fil-A Corporate. We met in April of 2016, roughly. He finished out his 20-year career and left December 31st. So it was about six months or so of hustle. And most of it was me putting in a lot of sweat equity, building websites, building infrastructure, working on the compliance stuff. And, you know, Jim... Jim working hard with the relationships and bringing that to the table. So once we launched one, one together, that's when that question maybe had more weight. Okay. Who's going to be doing what? And thankfully we're so opposite. It's, it's clear on the integrator and there hasn't really been a desire on Jim's part to, you know, he doesn't like getting too far into the weeds. And so, it's hard to it's hard to think about you know at the time we both met with clients we both just about did everything with more of the business management on my side jim was definitely doing a lot more client meetings and to this day the majority of his time is client facing you know he's the the reason why clients are coming to us now we're trying to you know pass on the ethos that jim has to the brand which is a process and takes time but right now it's very much Jim's company. Regardless of what name we put on there, people are coming. They know Jim. They remember the videos. They want to see his face and his goofy jokes. And so he's the one doing a lot of the client. You know, the time that I'm spending client facing actually has dropped dramatically as I've more embraced the integrator role and building the business and building the team and the accountability chart. So at the time it was just a hodgepodge and there was definitely points of frustration, you know, what felt like you know, work was being done in different areas at different times. And I, you know, I would be staying up all night to build. And, but now we've certainly gotten to a point where it's clear, like Jim has the chief growth officer role. You guys helped us on that front, really carving accountabilities and whatnot. I'm the integrator. I am letting go of things. I said, I'm a recovering do-it-yourselfer and an engineer by training. So I'm letting go of the vine and, we have an incredible team now. We hired very quickly. So September of 2017, we launched January of 2017. September of 2017 was our first hire, even though, again, the revenue is not there. And even, I mean, I'm happy to say our revenue, happy to share, you know, our revenues, you know, probably going to be north of 800,000, maybe 900, you know, by the end of the year. That was our original goal. Pandemic sort of knocked it out. If you look at our revenue and our AUM, you think, well, why do you have a nine-person team? You know, like we're doing the ensemble book, and that's our vision is to build that that ensemble practice. And so we've certainly hired ahead of our time. And the purpose of that really, Michael, is so that people can work on their accountabilities, that we can 
you know, really get in our lanes. And before that, it was just a hodgepodge of everyone doing everything. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it, it does. It does. So you're 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 looking at that transition that that I think comes from most businesses as you go. I, I think particularly maybe to some extent from five to 10 employees, but particularly when businesses go from 10 to 20 employees where everyone's roles suddenly start getting a lot more specialized. The, the analogy I heard for, uh, heard for it the other day was like you, you go from a team where everyone's a Swiss army knife into every, a team where everyone's a specialized kitchen knife and like, Starts spilling, starts fulfilling very specific functions in the business because you get large enough. It's like, okay, I need someone who's just going to be really awesome at this operate these few operation tasks. Like, well, okay, we have so many clients and do that so many times. Like, we actually do need someone just dedicated to that. And like, all right, well, if we're going to grow to the next level, we need someone focused on marketing. Well, okay, then we're going to hire a full time person on marketing, and you know, we need someone to help grind all these plans. Well, okay, we're going to hire a full time paraplanner. Like you, you. You go from that shift where you get to a certain size and mass, and in the business, most of the team goes from being generalist Swiss Army knife type folks. You know, we we all do everything into increasingly specialized team roles where you get someone that's great at this and someone that's great at that and someone that's great at the other thing for whatever the business needs. As you're going to that level, we're just getting there now, Michael. And so, and and even the rate of hiring will probably even pick up because we're getting clarity on the accountability chart of what are those specific roles that we need and can forecast talent needs and stuff like that. So yeah, summarize in the past, we didn't have a good clear picture. Jim was just bringing in the relationships, bringing in the clients, the growth that was Jim's brand and his efforts. And I was making sure clients, we had processes in place. We had, you know, systems, we had, you know, ways in which we would keep the people and not let them come into a house of cards. A very popular phrase that we keep, you know, plastered if we had an office, uh, and I, want, I don't want to butcher it now, but when your ability exceeds, or let me say that when your visibility exceeds your ability, it destroys your credibility. And that is our mantra, you know, bringing in five to 10 clients a month and now at 350, like, holy when cow, like, go ahead. When your visibility, I just, I'm sorry, I'm like really struck by that. When, when your visibility exceeds your ability, it destroys your credibility, right? Which is necessarily like, if you're bringing on too much business and you can't deliver on it because your visibility exceeds your ability, you lose all your credibility and you lose all your momentum. Exactly. And that was the pressure and the tension when I'm seeing, holy moly, we're bringing on 100, 120 clients a year and it's just Jim and myself. Who's doing the planning? Who's doing the process? Who's keeping them happy? And we certainly, you know, there has been a couple points in our timeline where we did hit pause and say, okay, we cannot take any more planning clients on. We've got to get strengthened on our process to be able to deliver that Starbucks experience where it's fully systematized, but it feels personal. But we don't want to have any clients drop the ball. When you have one client a month, you can really focus on, okay, where are they going and where are they at in the process? But when you, do modular planning where you're, you know, taking people at different rates of speed through our, our services. I was very much concerned about, okay, how do we make sure hundred clients are moving at different paces and no balls are dropped? And I would think particularly an issue in a, a close knit niche community like yours. If, if, if you guys drop the ball and give poor service and don't deliver well to your clients, like, 
word gets out pretty fast. Yeah, Jim was awesome, but this new thing he's doing, it really sucks. Don't don't go buy it. Right? Like it, a little bit of that word gets out, you're in trouble real quick. It's unreal. We've we've made mistakes. Don't get me wrong. We have made and there's a couple that are you know, you, you think about it and you cringe and word spreads like so quickly. There's operator forums, there's people texting and whatnot. And I heard this and I heard, and sometimes we get the feedback and sometimes we don't, but it is a two double-edged sword. You know, it's a very tight knit community. So when you're good, it's good. And when you're not, it's, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Then I, don't, I lose sleep. You got it. So talk to us a little bit more about what you do for for clients. And just again, I'm, I'm even struck the just, I, I get the opportunity and the sizable income they've got and, and, you know, the, the huge savings they can do on an ongoing basis, but just the average client size you're at, like you are not at a client size where you can do, you know, 30 plus hour, super in-depth, comprehensive financial plans. The math is not going to work well to grow the business at, at $2,000 or less of average revenue per client. So so talk to us about like what do you do for your clients at the end of the day? Like is this mostly about setting up 401k plans because that's their need? Are you doing a lot of other investment work? Are you doing a lot of broader financial planning work? Is it all like Chick-fil-A specific advice stuff? I just when a Chick-fil-A operator hires your firm, like what do you do for them and what do they get? Yeah, great, great question. One thing that we don't necessarily do, if you think about what we're doing, we're not going to enter the Chick-fil-A, what do you do in your job? If you if you take someone like a Reese Harper with Dentist Advisors, they're serving the industry of dentists. So they're not serving a specific brand. We're fortunate enough to where Chick-fil-A has an, you know, the support center has business consultants and financial consultants who do what Jim used to do in that helping operators in the business. So a lot of the practice management stuff, we don't have to enter into the, and we probably, you know, be stepping on some toes because they've got a, a team internally that helped them there. Does that make sense? So we're not helping them on practice management stuff. It's really when you draw a box around, we, we will definitely weigh in on, you know, entity structure, you know, making the jump from sole proprietor to S corp, the pros and cons of that from a taxation standpoint, where does your compensation need to be relative to your profits? But I'd say there's a black box around take home pay. We certainly enter into the space of, you know, how much W2 versus profits, but there's a black box around take home pay. And so from there, our three main buckets are financial planning, investment management, and retirement plan solutions. So we are adding tax prep. We actually have a beta group, this, you know, about 2025 20, households where in we're the 2020 tax year, we're gonna we're gonna do, you know, roughly 2025 20, returns, uh, maybe 10 business returns. And so that will be an ongoing added service to our financial planning clients. But you know, we're doing comprehensive financial planning. We're doing investment management, uh, and we leverage DFA. We're at TD Ameritrade, and you know, we've got Capitec and iRebal, and a lot of systems in place to help us manage portfolios. We 
do vet private equity opportunities. A lot of our operators love that kind of stuff, you know, direct placement of real estate. I'll help, you know, do a cash on cash return analysis or evaluate cap rate to compare. Is this a decent investment? I, you know, I personally love real estate, but from a firm standpoint, you know, it's, it's mainly for liquidity and retirement. It's, you know, the DFA long-term investing. And so that's the value we add there do the typical rebalancing and all that kind of stuff. But financial planning wise, it's a modular approach. If we had to deliver a comprehensive full financial plan in the first month, we would not be able to grow the rate at which we're growing. And I think you can clearly see that. So right. you, we de- you bottled neck around just the amount of time it takes to produce. Absolutely. Five to 10 new financial plans every month. If you were doing full financial plans for every new client every month. Yep. So we instead do a modular approach where we, you know, and pre, and we actually are about to implement a change and I'll talk about that. But right now it's a, you know, we, we do an onboarding, you know, where we get organized. I love your article about that. If anyone's looking for that, that get organized meeting and then, you know, set up the e-money profile. We do an initial planning meeting where, you know, what are we planning for? How can we be successful in three years? And, you know, begin with the end in mind sort of thing, you know, like the, the living, the living forward book, that life plan, you know, what is it that we're planning for? But then we launch into topic by topic so that clients actually make progress. So the pressure is not on us to deliver this fancy, you know, hundred page, 150 page plan. It's more like, okay, the, the, the topics that are of interest, let's break them down. And we do the homework, the pre-work, the analysis as we go before the meeting, during the meeting, and after the meeting is homework. And that helps us actually implement as we go along and we, and we drive change. There's downsides to that, Michael. You know, like when clients don't book meetings, we don't progress, right? And we can sort of stall. And that's a concern for us, which this recent change I'm about to get into will help us address that. But point blank, we do modular comprehensive financial planning. And then on the retirement side, you know, we've got a turnkey system there. We help them analyze which of the plan designs makes the most sense. We help them set up. We've vetted service provider. I've got a tremendous partner in the industry that I'm happy to share their contact info if anybody's looking for a good 401k provider. They helped teach us in the early stages, you know, because I don't have any credentials or training in the retirement space. We kind of learned as we went. And so who is it that you're working with then? Yeah, it's the payroll company. And it's TPC, and Angela is the director of that department. It's literally called the payroll company. (laughs) I thought, like, you know, we're working with them through their payroll. Like, yeah, but what's the payroll company? Like, no, 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 it's actually called the payroll company. Okay. They're a cross functional, like, they do HR stuff, they do payroll stuff, and they have a 401k arm. And so that's who it's, it's the 401k arm of TPC, the payroll company. And we have vetted the industry, man. We have, I've got a spreadsheet with, you know, who's doing 316 services. What's their fee structure? Who's doing the 338? You know, will they sign the, the 55? Just basically a spreadsheet of comparing services and fees. And that's how we originally found TPC is that they were the, one of the lower cost providers that did the full service, including the 316 fiduciary oversight. But they were also one of the cheapest ones. And so we developed a relationship there after some bad partnerships. I won't name them. So you've got these kind of three pieces. We're doing the planning work. 
to the extent they have assets in a portfolio, we're doing investment management with largely DFA funds. And then you've got the retirement plans section of what you do. So I do want to understand a little bit more around this modular planning framework. Like we, you know, we tackle a topic or two every meeting. And then as we meet, we continue to progress through stuff. So how often are you meeting with clients to do this on an ongoing basis? Like what is what does modular planning look like in practice? I would say the ones that are proactive, the ones that are, you know, actually moving forward, doing their homework and booking meetings, we encourage every four to six weeks. So it, it's possible that we'd be meeting monthly with clients, which is a lot from an advisor standpoint. But in the absence of that front load, and in really in the absence of that four-person ensemble team, which we we are we are just now rounding out, you know, the lead advisor, the service advisor, the associate advisor, and the client service associate. Now we're just now filling those roles. It's going to be amazing the throughput and the the relationships that a single advisor can handle. But in the absence of that, and in the absence of being able to do these full financial plans up front. You know, we are meeting one again with the ones that are that are proactive monthly to every six weeks to to see what you did, talk about the progress, and talk about the next action items. Okay, and can you give us some examples of just like what do you cover in a meeting? Right, like I, I think even for a lot of us, if we talk about module, it's like okay, so like you do a meeting on retirement, a meeting on estate, and a meeting on insurance. A meeting on I don't know college and like okay so four months later you're done with everything and then and then they're through the planning process or does it stretch out even further than that like how do you actually break this down modularly like how how modular or micro does it get yeah so again this is the way that we've done it up until today I would say in a couple of a couple this quarter so Q3 we're going to be releasing our new method and I'm happy to, to basically from the learnings of the past we've baked in, into to the new one but you'll find Michael that again if you leave it to clients to go at their pace a lot of times it takes a lot of efforts and you say the same thing okay we, we did a retirement analysis and you're a business owner you need to set up and this is non Chick Fil A people specifically, but you should set up a SEP, you know, or or a solo four hundred one k. You need to move your SEP into there. We need to start doing backdoor Roths, and it takes like two or three meetings of okay, what did you do? Okay, you if they choose to self implement, like if they're not doing in investing with us, they want to self implement. As an example, like five months later, they still haven't set up accounts or they, they still are, are still trying to do that. And so we'll spend the time to re-educate. And so it's a very reactive process. And so we really can't move forward until... So I would love for it to say that it just takes four months and you're done. But no, it can easily stretch from one to one to two years just getting through the initial topics. All the topics that you know the CFP would, would recommend, you know, estate planning, tax planning, you know, uh, education planning, and there's an element of implement along the way. So it does stretch out. It's not like we hit the topic, hand it to them, and we're done with that topic. No, like we don't move on until they've actually completed the homework. And sometimes we'll meet again and and have a working session where we may call and collect the information. And that's worked okay, but we're getting better and we're getting smarter. So uh, if you want, we can talk about what we're going to be going to next. Yeah, I, I do want to talk about what you're going to next, but I want to understand a little bit more of just 
how this process breaks down. So like how long are meetings if you're doing these meetings every four to six weeks? And, and I guess and also for context, these are virtual meetings because your team's distributed, right? Yeah. So I would say the majority of our meetings are via Zoom or some are even phone call. You know, some people, we give them the option. So our calendars are up to date on our website. So we don't batch currently. We don't batch meetings in a certain times of the year. I can see the value in that. But with our modular planning and with our so frequent of meetings, really, we just block personal and professional time and clients can book whenever they want via Calendly. And that's that's what happens. So every, and we have basically our time blocks. Sometimes they go over if I don't have a meeting after, but really the intention is for it to be an hour meeting. Yeah. And if, if, if enough time goes and, by- And so clients get a reminder like, hey, it's been four weeks since our last meeting hop on a Calendly and let's schedule the next one and check in about how you're doing. Or let's, let's keep your plan moving forward. So go at, you know, you haven't booked a meeting in a while. Let's, here's our, here's the link. Just about every signature we have and just about every communication says, Hey, go ahead and schedule your next meeting. But we do proactively say, okay, it's been a few months, you know, let's, let's check in and, and not fall off the wagon. And do you end out with like the master list? Like here are the, 17 things we're going to be going through over the next year or two, we're just going to be hitting them one meeting at a time over the next year or two, or like, is the list itself more dynamic? Like I'm still trying to figure out where's the crossover between we got all the stuff we want to cover in your plan. We want to do this modularly so we don't bite off more than, than we can chew at once. And we do actually want to make sure we get everything at the end of the day and don't leave any, any gaps open. Right. And there have been a few, I mean, honestly, the most clients are still in transition getting through that initial financial plan. You know, our vision is this sort of maintenance calendar mode that we get through the initial plan and everyone moves there where, you know, every month we're doing this, where we're monitoring and adjusting that. So I would say that we're kind of in a hybrid state of that right now. There's still certain things that are time-based that we hit all clients with like IRA reminders, you know, end of year tax giving stuff, 401k reminders. So there's elements of the modular approach where regardless of where they're at, it's time-based. We are hitting all clients at the same time with, hey, this is the action you need to take now. Or it's end of year and we've got all the retirement plans and it's time to process the profit sharing numbers or, or this and that. So in the beginning, we show the schedule of topics. We allow clients to rearrange them based on what's most important to them. And yeah, we sort of you know have this, again, loosely held... We know what we've covered. We know what we haven't covered. And we just take it reactively. Okay, what did we accomplish in this meeting? Schedule the next one and we'll progress. And the big key word there is reactionary. And that's the part that you know I'm uncomfortable with. And that's why uh, we are moving to a more prescribed process. And we take it on Salesforce, which is a beast. We've spent the last year customizing Salesforce and workflows in Conga to be able to better track where people are, to better display where they are in the process and to, you know, instead of it being reactionary for the client to book a meeting, we're prompted saying, hey, it's been this amount of time, they haven't done anything. Let's let's engage the client specifically. So that's that yeah, so that's the part you're building in the in the Salesforce is the CRM to actually be able to track like, okay, here's a list of all the clients, here's a list of the date they had the last meeting. 
if you know date of last meeting is more than 60 days ago, trigger email reminder to go out for for meeting. That's the sort of stuff you can program into a CRM like Salesforce that I guess just ultimately lets you track and automate that. Well, I guess you won't, you may not automate the email, but at least like you automate the reminder, I need to check in with this client about what's going on. Yeah. And if you ask me, what do I think is a better way? You know, I would say everyone get on your podcast from a few, you know, weeks ago to Reese Harper, Reese Harper and dentist advisors and take a look at what they have done. And I'm so impressed. I really feel like what they are doing is what we've been striving to do. And they've got 16 years to perfect the process, not only for the specializing, the process around your, your niche, right? Planning for your ideal client and changing a process to that, but these micro touch points. So we're actually moving to let's get that full plan done in the first three months where we still have elements like get organized, you know, explore possibilities meeting, and then a plan delivery where we're going to say, here's where we want to take you and then launch into every month. There are specific micro touch points for the planning process where we have specific ratios that we're calculating that help answer questions on liquidity and real estate holdings. You know, if it's tax time, we're going to have a month deliverable around that. And we move everyone through maintenance at the same time through these micro touch points, you know, each month. That's where we're going to be building out some, you know, some systems and automation in Salesforce and Conga. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So, and so why, why Salesforce of all the different CRM systems that are out there? Yeah, I would say I'm a very tech focused person, you know, being an engineer and, Another phrase that we hang our hats on is to automate the transactional, to elevate the relational. And, you know, again, I'm going to keep referring to Reese Harper, hopefully not too many more times, but, you know, he, his philosophy is to let computers be good at what computers do and to let humans do what, you know, let them excel at what they're good at. And so to me, when you think about experiences like Starbucks, when you think about, you know, a systemized, systematized white glove experience with high volume of throughput of clients coming in the door, systems and processes has to be the way. And automation is a big deal. You know, what can we have our systems, you know, talk to each other to execute transactions on our behalf, to keep us organized, to, to do things for us. And to me, the flagship is Salesforce. We, we, We've done Wealthbox, we've done Redtail, that's what we're currently coming out of, and the workflow systems in Redtail is phenomenal. But there's still limitations on what can trigger the advancement of a workflow, what the workflow can do on your behalf. You know, we're also integrating Pardot, which is a Salesforce native product, to leverage our one-to-many communications and to have decision trees on, you know, the email campaign. So it, part of the monthly processes is going to be developing these email communications that take in client-specific information from Salesforce, populate reports, and distribute them all. If you don't have systems and processes to do that with all these touch points, that's a lot of bodies, right? And so I'm a technology first in terms of systems. Let, Let humans do what they're good at and let the technology really make sure no balls are dropped. Another philosophy that I that I <laughs> like to work with our ops specialists is, you know, let Salesforce do what we do better, 
let Salesforce do what we do with less effort and let Salesforce allow us to do more, do more than what we're currently doing. So those are kind of things with how can we leverage technology? And so to me, Salesforce, and we went straight to the financial services cloud because it was the most customizable, biggest price tag, biggest headache, but future state of where we want to get to, we felt like that was going to support our long-term vision. And again, worth reinforcing that when you're staring down, adding a client or two a week, five to 10 a month, 75 to 100 for the year, like, again, it creates a whole other level of pressure around how are you systematizing to be able to track and monitor everything and all the different stuff that's going on and running through because that's a lot of volume. Like you, you will lose track of it quickly if you can't figure out how to track all of it effectively in a, in a CRM system and automate as many pieces as you can that can be automated. Yeah, you can meter, you know, you can slow the flow of clients and make sure that you can service them well. But when you have, like you said, you know, if if you are moving clients through your services and they're done within three months, that's one thing. But you've got clients who are on a one to two year journey just through the initial process and you've got a hundred coming through each year, you can see where balls can be dropped. And to prevent that, I think you've got to place a lot of investment in infrastructure or headcount, one of the two. And we certainly are not shy to advance the team, but I want to make sure that we're, you know, letting technology do what it can do and then free people up to have relationships and to have impact and not feel this burden of manual tasks. And for those who aren't familiar, what what is Conga and what role does Conga play in this? Yeah, so we <laughs> we thought, okay, if I'm going to spend $20,000 a year on Salesforce and Pardot, okay, we don't need anything else, right? That we, we have, we've taken the price tag, we're, we're just embracing it. But unfortunately, what you, what you find when you enter Salesforce is you may still, you still may need to invest further in software. There may be functionality. You would think that, okay, Salesforce, when I pay for it, the financial services crowd, it should be at least able to do everything that Red Redtail does and more, right? That would be my assumption. That's the that's what I entered into the space thinking, but I found that that's not true. And the concept of a workflow is so challenging from a Salesforce standpoint. There are ways to do it with a, you know, tasks and action lists, but the way we think about workflows like that Redtail accomplishes or even Wealthbox, that does not exist in a clean cut, easy manner. So we've actually spent the better part of a year trying to figure out how do we do workflows in Salesforce? And Conga has a, a slew of suites or wow, it's a suite of services. The one specifically is Conga Orchestrate and that's the one where we're actually building our workflows inside of that is native to Salesforce, but prevent, presents a sort of visual editor to building out what is complex in the way of workflows. So at the end of the day, like Salesforce, I guess, has the has the underlying flexibility to be able to to facilitate workflows, but just the the software itself doesn't actually do it well and effectively. So you had to buy Conga as an overlay to, to build the workflow sequences and structure the way that you actually wanted it to work. 
Exactly. Exactly. And we explored really every other way to do it. And I was in disbelief that spending that much on Salesforce and we had to go out and get another way. And I probably took six months of our ops specialist, Anthony's time, trying to figure out the best way. But in the end, Conga was the best investment in order to sustainably build and manage workflows going forward. And so I'm just going to ask, like, you take Salesforce, which is more expensive than Redtail, add Financial Services Cloud, which is more expensive than that, and then had to go buy Conga. So, like, do you now regret and wish you went back to, to Redtail? Or is there now, at least with all these dollars, something that you get out of it? Like, how do you... How do you weigh all these like extra dollars plus extra dollars plus extra dollars pieces of Salesforce against like what are you you doing or getting out of it that you weren't able to get from Redtail that makes all this cost worthwhile? Yeah, and to be honest, we're a year into it and we still are having our foot in both CR. We still have not turned off Redtail. And the reason for that is we went out and got a consultant pricing to just you know, do all these customizations. So you have to do a lot of customizations. If you go to an, an Accelerate or the TD's option or Orion's option, you're going to get a lot of things customized and thought out and built out for you. For me, the vision was what's the begin with the end in mind? And we want the fully customizable, complete control. You know, if we want to be a billion dollar firm, there's going to be a ton of these processes to automate. I wanted complete flexibility. I believe it is more robust. I still, I still believe that it's the most expensive route. And once you get onto the platform, it's not like, okay, you've arrived. Congratulations. Here's the confetti. No, it's like, go find a consultant and pay them $100,000 to customize it for you. So we actually went down that path and got a quote and spent, you know, three to four grand getting, just paying someone to evaluate our business process to then propose how to customize Salesforce for us. In which case they offered a proposal of 60 grand just to basically get the most basic functionality that we had in Redtail going, reproduce that. That was not our future state wish list items. And so, I, you know, I hit pause on the consultant. That was about the time that COVID happened and, you know, cash flow dried up, you know, on, on the growth front. And we just said, you know what, let's continue to build this out ourselves. So Q3 2020, we will launch we will, we have Operation Kill Redtail, <laughs> and unfortunately, Precise FP doesn't know, but we had, we do have Operation Kill Precise FP. We found native solutions uh, that do more of the customization autom- automation. So, if anybody's wondering, we're using DocuSign, the API version, to allow us to automate the account opening process and really just have Salesforce drive a lot of behavior. I I really can't stand Michael. You know, we collect the information through clients and then we have to transcribe it in other ways. You know, the systems don't perfectly talk to one another and that just drives me nuts and from an inefficiency and it doesn't make sense. So Salesforce will allow us to do anything we can, anything you can dream of, you can build there. And I'm, I'm not a Salesforce. I don't have a referral code or I don't get paid by them. Well, I think and, for most people listening, you're like scaring them off of the cost of what it takes to build all this stuff. But, but I guess that's also part of the point. Like, you got to be excited about the vision of what you're going to build if you want to spend the dollars and resources to build pretty much whatever you want in Salesforce because you know you can have your vision but it will cost you choose accordingly absolutely and and you may even need dedicated headcount so we have an ops specialist on our team who now 100% of his time has been Salesforce management he was doing other things in the past but and so ongoing customization you either have to have a 
you know, relationship with a developer and pay them their fees, you know, two to $300 an hour to, to custom, to customize it, or you, you start, you know, a Salesforce administrator on board. And so Anthony's working through, you know, reaching levels of certification in, in Salesforce. In the end, Michael, the reason why we're doing this and Jim, my partner, he scratches it sometimes and wonder, you know, did we go on this too soon, you know, for the price tag. But to me, the, the vision is we both agree that we need this long-term and going to where we want to go, billion dollar firm, supporting the client load that we want to, it is the right decision. It's just going to take time to, to build it. And so just like we hired ahead of our time, I think we've adopted technology ahead of our time. And I think we in, in the next year, we will reap the benefits of this tremendous investment. So talk to us a moment about how you guys are actually charging for your services between this, like, we do the planning work, but it's ongoing modular and at least relative to a lot of firms, kind of fairly meeting intensive. You've got an investment management offering of, of helping them with their portfolio. You've got a retirement plan offering as well. So how does how do fees work for you guys? Is this like three services, three separate fees? You choose what you want. Is it one big bundled thing? Are you AUM? Are you flat fee? Are you monthly? Like how does the how's the fee structure work with all these different services? And we've wrestled with that and there are changes to that. I mean, if you hear one thing, you'll hear that we're iterating and growing and everything's on the table, you know, to, to get better at. But currently it's, you know, clients can engage us for any of the services uh, independently. It's not uncommon for there to be a retirement only client. So setting up a 401k, it's not uncommon to see, you know, a 401k and investing, excluding planning. So we've got 350 households. We probably have 90 or so that are engaging us for financial planning. That is, a, you know, it, it can be independent of the others. Future state that's going to be different. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. But currently, you know, we, we do an upfront fee of about two grand and we charge $250 a month and it's just an ongoing retainer. So in years two and three and four, you know, they're, they're paying us about, it's like three grand, I think, for ongoing planning. That works. You know, we we certainly have clients now before we set these prices where they're paying 50 bucks a month, you know, for the same sort of access. So those are kind of like the legacy early adopters. New clients are 2000 up front, 250 a month. Investment ma- management separate. We do charge AUM. It starts at one and a quarter and, and goes down at various, you know, asset levels. I think half a million, it drops to 1% and, and so on and so, so forth down to like 2 million above is like 0.75, I think, something like that. The the 401k space, it's asset based, and we pretty much charge new plans, fifteen hundred bucks or so, fifteen fifty, to get onboarded and to to go through the initial analysis. And we've developed a proprietary tool to really get laser specific, including information about you know the Chick Fil A cost sharing and you know who pays for what. And so we've developed that tool that really helps to streamline onboarding, but 1550 up front and then 75 basis points of assets in the plan. And so if you look at our AUM, I think I have some of those numbers in front of me, but AUM in retirement space at the end of 2017 was like less than $2 million because we're starting up all these micro, you know, startup plans with no assets. But fast forward to the end of 2019, and we've got 28 million. There's really this hockey stick 
scenario. And it's going to continue to be that way because we've started introducing things like pension plans where like we've got one client who's 71-ish years old, three three stores, and they're putting away just between him and his wife seven to $800,000 a year into a cash balance pension that lowers their taxable income in one year. Not to mention what they're doing for team members. And so you, you think about these startup plans and this hockey stick where you know you add profit sharing and operators are putting away two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a year. Because again, these are high income businesses. So seventy five basis points. There wasn't a lot of revenue in the early years. There won't be, but it's a it's a it's a long term play. I would say that you know revenue per client for us is really low now, but I'm comfortable with it because we're still iterating on our process. We're still getting smarter and how we can do more for clients. And so assets are, are exponentially rising. You know, we're almost at 70 million of AUM where just a few years ago, we started at nothing. So we didn't buy any books of business. We plan to be at 85 million by the end of this year and a billion in 10 years. So there's sort of an element of, we understand we're getting underpaid. In some ways, our services could improve once we have these systems and processes in place. And we're comfortable being at a lower price per household now. But we're very quickly transitioning to a model like with financial planning. Again, reference dentist advisors, they're doing a great job of it of, you know, maybe it's it's five thousand a year minimum fee. And if you bring assets, great, it's an additional fee, but we'll credit your monthly, you know, your your monthly rate will go down. So instead of paying five hundred bucks a month, you may pay four hundred depending on the assets. Currently, if you bring over 750000 of assets, we don't charge for planning. And we do give credit for the assets that are in the retirement plan for the household. So not like total plan assets, but husband and wife, if they have a couple hundred thousand in the retirement plan, that counts towards price breaks in the other departments. But it sounds like you're, uh, yeah, it does. Like get to a certain asset threshold and and the... And the 250 month planning fee gets waived, except it sounds like you want to, I guess, either raise the planning fee, maybe raise the asset threshold for that offset or, or some combination of the two. Yeah. So we're going to go to a minimum household fee. So we don't want to say asset minimums, but along the lines of what we said earlier with someone who's motivated, someone who sees your value and willing to pay your fee, that's who our ideal client is. And on top of that, our Chick-fil-A you know, niche. But for us, it's going to be five thousand minimum for the planning investing. We're going to call it, you know, sort of this outsourced CFO role uh, where we're doing financial planning, investment management, and it's not separate. They're not separable, and so instead of it being an all or nothing, once you reach an asset level, we're going to, you know, have price breaks along the way where maybe you knock off a hundred bucks instead of an all or nothing. So. You know the person that's paying the most, who's got six hundred thousand of assets plus the full planning fee, and then when they get to seven fifty, boom, the the planning fee goes away. Instead, we'll we'll you know lower the fee, the planning it phase fee. out the planning fee over time as the as it comes up, which is really just sort of like a steeper graduated fee schedule sort of thing. Yeah, and so then we're not begging clients to bring assets over, but we're basically charging one way, whether or not you bring it over and you'll get price breaks 
if you choose to bring it over. Does that make sense? We start at five thousand dollars. If you want to bring over a, a million dollars, you'll you'll start getting a discount on on planning fees and minimum fees as your AUM fee ramps up. So you still pay a little bit more because you're a bigger client, but you're getting faster breakpoints because you're winding down your planning fees as your AUM rises. Yep, that's exactly it. And and you know our services are going to get more interesting when our plan is to offer tax prep. And so that's only going to be if you're a finan- we don't want to be a H&R block. So, you know, we don't want to just crank out tax returns for non-planning clients. We've already got the information, it's already part of our process to do planning. So it's it's just a little bit more effort. I mean, it's a lot more effort, but we're going to do tax prep as well for our planning clients. So that'll be an additional fee on top of that. And then right after that, our plan is to offer bookkeeping. So if you think about a business owner, if we can help them, you know, get their bookkeeping in order, we can do their tax, and then we can be their CFO that handles their personal and business finances through this process where every month we're doing a little bit of touch points. I think that's going to be a stellar process for our ideal client. And they're all running businesses. So they all need, they all have to have someone do their small business accounting. It's a it's a it's a necessary on demand service for them, so it just gets more straightforward. Say we'll we'll do that for you as well. Yeah, and I think a big learning that we've had, Michael, is instead of you know going into this lab and concocting the best plan and the perfect way to do all this, ask your client and build what they want and learn and iterate. That's when you get a, a specialized area you can get that specific feedback. Well, what do you actually want to plan for? Does this matter to you? And not, okay, we take it out and next year, the you know this month won't have this deliverable. We'll start really fine tuning. Alan put it like, you know, you're laying the tracks as you go. And that's really, instead of it going for a perfection on day one, launch the minimum viable product and iterate on it. I think the distinction is, you know, for the average advisory firm where we have clients all over the place, right? Just, you know, we, we, we accumulate all these different clients over time. You know, it, like if you ask 50 clients what they want, you get 50 different things that they want. And then you have to pick like, which thing are you going to do that only a couple of them are going to use? So you usually pick the things that the top level clients reuse and that you end up with sort of an A client offering that's different from the rest. But it's, it's, it's hard to systematize them when, when you've got 300 plus clients who are all Chick-fil-A operators, it is overwhelmingly likely that whatever you make for one of them is going to be something that the majority of them want. And so, you know, you, you can ask a few and make something that's relevant for hundreds. Whereas I think for most advisors, one of the pain points around niches and uh, like the lack of a niche and the lack of efficiency that comes from it is you can't, it's really hard to find one thing that all your clients like because they're all so different. When you've got a consistent niche, if there's something that one of your clients likes, probably most of them are going to like it and you can do it on a sustained, repeatable, systematized basis. Absolutely. And when the client, when I get in front of an operator or a support staff, I know exactly the pain points that they have. And I get excited to answer questions they haven't even thought to ask yet, uh, just because of the benchmark data that we've seen across other, you know, <laughs> you hear things that other operators are doing and then you can present that. And really that was Jim's job as a financial consultant, really just what are other operators doing in the business to make more money in terms of cutting costs and being more profitable and just leverage, you know, the shared information. There's some exciting things we can do as we embrace the hedgehog and really just say, okay, Chick-fil-A only. So, so now talk for a few minutes as well about the, the dynamic of 
building the firm itself and why why you built this virtually with team all over the place. Things like part in Atlanta, part in Montana, someone down in Texas. Why virtual? I mean, obviously it's turned out to be fortuitous in a pandemic world that sort of forced it, but you, your virtual thing predated the pandemic. Like why, why virtual? Yeah. So it works with our clientele, but I would say I was doing this from day one, five years ago when I launched into the profession, you know, I, I had an office for a few months, realized nobody came to it and I didn't have the cash flow to, to keep it up. There was an initial stigma like, Oh, where do you work? Oh, you work out of home. Oh, okay. And it, it would be that moment. And Quite frankly, I've way gotten over that stigma. Even to this day, you know, when I, even though we're running a pretty awesomely uh, fun business, you know, there's still an element, where's your office? It's like, oh, I work from home. And you still see that sort of like, you know, pre pandemic, there was this, you know, sort of judgment. But in the end, some of the benefits are I can attract talent from wherever they are, right? We're not limited to geography or, other life circumstances. Um, we really can find the best people. And that's why our business has grown. There's another quote that your growth needs to be throttled by your ability to attract good people that get it, want it, and have the capacity to do it, as well as align with your core values, the right person, right seat on the bus, good to great and traction. So that has been a very big strategic advantage because our you know, our team is even in Georgia, there are scattered probably within a three to four hour radius. If you know, go from one end to the other. And then, you know, I'm in Montana and we got two others there in different cities in Montana. The reason why we were able to attract Thomas from Kansas state as a graduate who now moved to Texas with his new bride is that we aren't limited to a location. Clients that we serve are all over the U S. So even though headquarters, support centers in South Atlanta near the airport, you know, operators are in across the country. And quite frankly, they don't care to have to travel. And, and, you know, there are some that Jim meets with at support center there. He'll, he'll, he's got access to, to go to Chick-fil-A support center and meet clients there. And he can meet for coffee locally, which is, which is based in Georgia. Yes. It's, it's, it's there uh, South side of Atlanta, right near the airport in Hartsfield. So that's where Jim lives, and that's where a lot of Chick-fil-A people live. And quite frankly, our clients fly in and out of the support center. So if we ever were going to have a headquarters, it's going to be right there near Chick-fil-A, uh, which we're wrestling with at the moment. But you know, for the people that need to meet in person, Jim is there, and that's who they want to see anyway. And he's happy to drive up to the support center. But I can work from anywhere Michael and I can work from my phone and I can manage a nine person team. And it's been really exciting. We've been in an RV two out of the last three months and I still meet with clients and I still run a level 10 meeting from traction, you know, every Monday and I'm still playing the integrator role. And quite frankly, it's allowed for time and financial freedom rather than having the burden cost of a physical location. And that's kind of in a nutshell why it's been fun. I'm not sure where we're going to go moving forward. How do you think about this moving forward? Like you have some very, very large growth aspirational plans. There are certainly businesses that I think struggle more with doing the virtual thing when they're larger. It's at least just more people makes it a little bit more complex than when it's than where we're all independent and smaller. So like, how do you think about this going forward? Are you envisioning like, hey, the virtual thing worked, worked in the early years, but it's not going to work from here? Or do you 
are you thinking like, no, we're going to, we're going to scale this thing to a billion dollars virtually. So if you, if you look at our 10 year vision, which comes from traction, working through that exercise we have on their billion dollar firm to remain virtual with an optional sort of resource uh, headquarters for us near the Chick-fil-A area. That's how we've been. I would say in the last month, we have gained clarity around Chick-fil-A being our, what we're going to serve exclusively. And I would say that kind of like the V for Vendetta point with the domino, you know, the, the single piece that triggers this entire change of thinking, I would say that move has moved some things in my brain wondering, okay, would we be more strategic having resources right there next to headquarters where clients fly in and out of, um, you know, can we build a culture with 50 people on our team the same way we do now with nine? And those are all very good concerns. Uh, you know, we've posed the question to you and Alan, you know, why did you guys move from a primarily virtual based XYPN business to, you know, needing a headquarters there in Bozeman, Montana? I would say what is our strategic advantage in keeping us this way is the entrepreneur operating system out of traction where we have very specific strategic documents for team members. We have personal, professional, financial goals documents where team members are articulating you know, their desires and wants and their career paths. We have you know, the EOS for weekly meetings, quarterly retreats, mini retreats, and an annual retreat. So we just flew the entire team and their families to Bozeman this past January. So it was an incredible experience where we got that in person. So it's it's that systematized people process and hiring the right people who, you know, trust. Trust is our number one core value. So I don't micromanage, even though I'm acting CEO from an outward perspective. And there's no middle management. Everyone technically reports to me in our, in our current state. But we have a system of trust. We have documents where everyone knows exactly what their responsibilities are. We have quarterly rocks that tie to the one-year plan, that tie to the three-year picture, that tie to the 10-year vision. So everyone's aligned and know exactly what they're expected of. And you know, we just moved to 100% or unlimited vacation, which we got from you guys, as a demonstration of trust. So I think trust has to exist. And quite frankly, I do think we could get further along than others in a virtual environment. But I am asking the question, okay, will we grow faster and more effective by having at least some sort of physical presence there next to our ideal client's headquarters? So more to come on that. But as far as our team's concerned, we're not making any big decisions, hopefully in the next two to five years, but it is a question we're still wrestling with. So what surprised you the most about trying to build an advisory business? <laughs> surprised me the most. That's a good question. What surprised me the most? The first couple of years were absolutely the hardest. And so... I've always been an entrepreneur. I've always been a business builder, an empire builder, but just really how hard the first year would be was probably the most shocking. Right now, it's a joy, and the only thing that surprises me are, are, are pleasant. We're in a really good rhythm now, but those first few years, you know, no cash flow, no clients, no experience, trying to have a work-life balance, trying to allow my wife to stay home with the kids where I was building a business from scratch and watching our, our newborn 
at the same time, I think people underestimate what it takes to persevere in the first year to two years. Hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> so what what was the low point for you in the in those early years? I mean, that was a low point for me personally and my marriage and to paint the picture, I transitioned from chemical engineering, working in food manufacturing, went full-time, got a master's in wealth management and was doing a full-time master's. In that time, I'd launched a landscaping business from scratch with another guy to learn business. You know, we developed two teams and crews and commercial accounts. And I sold the business when I was done, but working pretty much 68 hours a week in that business, not making any money because just reinvesting everything while going full-time masters. And my wife was pregnant with our first child and she was a pharmacist and, you know, I'm not making any money. It, It took about, I went two years without bring a dollar to our household during that process of masters, launching a business from scratch, finishing the masters. And so even that first year of, you know, so at the end of that process, finishing the masters, launching a business from scratch, we are, our first child was born that same time period. My wife had to work full time. So she's working and 40 plus hours a week, 50 hours a week, not able to be with her child because at the end of the day, you're like you're getting started and bringing no dollars home. So the the family formula was she had to work to support the family while you were building the business. Not only was I not providing, I had expenses. I bought e money from day one. If you get an, an idea of you know my early adoption of tech, so I had expenses for the six for six months and no income, and we didn't have a runway built up of a nest egg. We just cash flowed the whole thing. And, you know, thankfully she had incredible income, but she had to work when she wanted to be home with the kids. And I was watching our son, our newborn while building a business from scratch. And I would say no time, no money, stress, new baby and wife working when she didn't want to. That was (laughs) a very dark time, you know, gained weight during that period of time because just sitting and working and yeah, I would say, Michael, that that culminates to the low point in my career there. I think that's uh, <laughs> looking back on it. And so what pulls you through that? That's a good question. I mean, to be honest, in the aftermath, we have certainly invested more in the marriage. You know, we did counseling. We, you know, sought counsel from friends. We were very open about our struggles. Thankfully, the business picked up, right? Financially, that was a big stressor. But, you know, just the grind of making it one client at a time and revenue picking up and and hurdles, finally, about a year or so into the business, we were at a point and it was post meeting Jim that Ashley got to come home from working. You know, we had our second child. I think that relieved some tension there, just grinding the business and growing the clientele and you know, understanding that, hey, these years of turmoil have taken a toll on our relationship, prioritizing that um, and investing in that in the years since then, investing in my relationship with the kids, that's been the only way to have come out of that period. So as you look back and anything you wish you'd done differently in those early years, like what, what do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from five years ago when you're getting started and coming out of the master's program and no clients and no cash flow, trying to figure out what to do. 
I regret nothing about our process now. I'm I'm thankful for where we are now. I'm thankful for the growth. I'm thankful for our team. I'm thankful for my partnership. Uh, I'm thankful for the clients. I wouldn't change that process at all. If I look at someone else who says, should I start a business from scratch, going and get a master's in career changing with no client, no experience, I'd say, no, (laughs) don't do that. Get a runway, go work with a firm, come up with a better transition period. It's not worth the stress on your other key accounts. So like we, we are going through the book Living Forward as a firm, developing a life plan. And we were so out of balance in those early years with the business and everything else bankrupt. So that part, I guess I could say that I wouldn't do again. You, you know, you can grow more slowly or take a different path, but we do enjoy time and financial freedom now as a result of those financial sacrifices in the early days. So that part are you know, our kids are experiencing things, you know, we're driving across the country, we're able to work from wherever. Now we're really reaping the benefit, but those early years were pretty, pretty difficult. So any other advice you would give younger and newer advisors coming into the business today about where to go or how to get started? You guys beat the niche drum pretty hard, niche, niche. And I got to be niche. It's got to be niches because it rhymes with riches. I think that was the determining factor with our team. How do we pronounce it? Niches, riches. There we go. I strongly believe now seeing the success we've had, I don't want to prescribe, but when you can find, and it doesn't matter, it's really the, the hedgehog concept. So it's not just what you're good at. It's not just what you can build a business at. And it's not just what you're passionate at, right? Because you could be passionate about something that you can't sustain a business on. So it's really the intersection of all three of those things. But if you can find that, that is going to provide laser focus on what should you build? Who should you involve? What does your team look like? What are your core values? If you can wrestle with your hedgehog concept, what can you truly be the best in the world at? Embrace that. I would, I would say do that sooner than later. Get the book, Good to Great, Hedgehog Concept. I also recommend traction. If you truly want to build a business that will outlive you, the sooner you can identify what are you building, right? You guys have said it many times, you can build the wrong business and be really successful. And I would be afraid of that. So if you can go through like a life plan exercise with traction, identifying what your business that you're trying to build in 10 years and you backtrack from there, you're going to you're going to grow much faster. So I would I would do some soul searching, figure out what your hedgehog concept is and embrace it and then pick up traction and start systematizing the business to, you know, to outlive you. I don't want this business to be dependent upon me. I'm trying to work myself out of a job. I want it to outlive me. I want it to, you know, serve clients well beyond my time here. And so for me, that requires some investing in the infrastructure of the actual business. I, I love it. And for folks that are listening, if you want re- reference links out for some of the books that we're mentioning here, uh, Good to Great, Gina Wickman's Trackman, Traction and such, this is episode 196. So if you just go to kitsis.com slash 196, uh, we'll, we'll have links out for all of that. If you want to find these, so you don't have to pull over and scribble it down while you're driving or anything. So... So Daniel, as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the 
the word success means different things to different people. And so you're on this you know, incredibly successful trajectory for the, the rapid growth of the business. But how do you define success for yourself at this point? Oh, I love it, Michael. I love how you ask everyone else. And this is, I, I love it. So for me, success is to have financial and time freedom, not just financial freedom, but time freedom to focus on what matters most in life. So for me, drawing from the Living Forward book and creating a life plan uh, to live in balance isn't necessarily to give each life account equal time and energy, but the appropriate time. So yeah, and and for me to live a life with no regrets in which you know I prioritize my faith, my family, and to have deep lasting relationships. And for the business, success to me professionally is to build a place where clients and employees thrive and specifically one that will outlive me. So something that doesn't revolve or, or need me to carry on. So that's how I define success. I love it. I love it, including, I think, that, that interesting piece at the end of, of having it be a business is something that outlives you. It's, it's not something that I, I think a lot of us as advisors come to the table thinking and, and like not to be negative, but just a lot of us, like we're, I think we're just so focused on making sure this business works and like we serve clients and they hire us and they pay us and it earns a livable wage and maybe we can even grow that a little bit over time. We're just sort of getting through the the nuts and bolts and the day-to-day grind of just making the advisory practice work in and of itself that to have that mindset of like, oh, and by the way, I want it all to outlive me at the end as you're like three or four years in and have a multi-decade career ahead of you. I think it's just a really, a really cool mindset to come to the table with. And Michael, if you'll allow me one more plug here in terms of what has influenced me greatly in, in the success topic, the ensemble practice. You you did interviews with the author there, but pick up that book as well. And building a team environment that that can outlive me it really is dependent upon that ensemble approach and not this siloed or eat what you kill, but really this environment where the whole team can thrive. That's a, a pretty big infamous emphasis for me. I love it. I love it. We'll try to have you back in a few years as you guys queue up on your billion dollar threshold and, and hear more about how this, how this growth journey played out. For you. Thank you so much, Daniel, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.